The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by Goldspot Discoveries. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. Last week, we heard individual stories from three geological surveys and how they support both exploration for minerals, but also wider society, including cool data resources, applying systems thinking, and building capacity in other countries. Today, we're taking a deep dive into a frontier for resources, and we'll get started with a conversation that highlights the relationship between ocean and marine science and economic geology. For this, I spoke to Mark Hennington from his base in Ottawa, and we had a few connection issues, but the content is too good to miss. Mark Hennington is a big name in seafloor sulfides and ocean floor and ocean exploration. And maybe you could tell me a little bit about you and how did you come to be doing this work romping around the oceans of, of the globe? Wow. Where, where did you get started? Yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite an introduction. There are a lot of big names in, in this field. I'm just on the lunatic fringe of economic geology in this field. But I got started in this back in the early 1980s as an undergrad. Steve Scott, who had just come back from one of the first dives by any economic geologist on the seafloor, was giving a lecture tour across Canada. This was at Queen's at the time. And and uh, Steve was just amazing, as only Steve can be. And, and he introduced uh, a pretty eager audience to the whole new concept of diving on the ocean floor and seeing mineralizing processes in, in real time. And I thought at the time that this is something I had to do. And so I simply went up to him afterwards and said, you know, uh, sign me up. How can I get involved? And within a year, I was working with Steve and we were at sea. We were diving and uh, never looked back. Yeah. What an opportunity. So yeah. where did you go on that first dive? Well, I was off of Canada. In fact, we uh, were off of Vancouver Island on Explorer Ridge, which is a part of the Juan de Fuca Ridge system. We were diving with the Canadian submersibles, the Pisces at the time, now are operated in Hawaii. And we dove to a depth of about 2,000 meters to the first known black smokers in, the, in Canadian waters. And, and that's where my program got started. I never looked back. I've been diving and, and, and going to sea ever since. Wow. So at the beginning, in those early days, we, we was focused on the smokers and the, the active vents and all that exploration. And I remember when I was at university and I got to work on the first sample brought back from the East Pacific Rise that was brought up in 1979. So my honors thesis was on a black chimney. It was so exciting to, to see that happening. But at the time, we were exploring using helium as an indicator of where these vents were. So how has that changed over time? How, how has our exploration for these things and, and beyond changed the tools that we're using? Yeah, well, the techniques that we use today to identify hydrothermal activity are pretty much the same as they were in the very beginning. Uh, as you mentioned, helium, methane, manganese, iron in the water column, and particulates in the water column. These are, we're basically hunting for hydrothermal plumes. And in the old days, this was, and still today, this was done with uh, large bottles. So they're sent down to the seafloor several kilometers on a wire. And you trigger the bottle to capture a sample of the, of the water column and hope to find a signal of, of the hydrothermal plume. And we still do that today, only we do it with different 
tools, the technology has, has advanced. So we used to send down one bottle at a time. Now we send down 40 or 50 bottles at a time. But more importantly, we're using uh, things like autonomous uh, underwater vehicles now to carry the instruments that we would normally have, have used on the deck of the ship or even back in the lab. These instruments are now going to the bottom of the ocean to detect hydrothermal activity. So that the actual measurements haven't changed that much, but the technology has advanced considerably and the detection limits as well. There are now people who are building small mass spectrometers to go uh, onto remotely operated vehicles. So, wow, that, that's quite an image, a, a mass spec on the seafloor. <laughs> yeah, well, they're small enough. <laughs> they're small enough, yeah. So tell me a bit about the actual vents and the relationship, obviously, between volcanogenic massive sulfides, as we like to call them in North America, and what we're finding on the seafloor. And and how did that relationship develop between economic geology and, and marine science, even from the very beginning? Yeah, well, in the very beginning, of course, the discovery, you described the chimneys that, that you worked on. Those discoveries were made by volcanologists and biologists who really had no inkling of the significance of what they were looking at in terms of an from an economic geology perspective or a mineral deposits perspective. And it wasn't long after that first discovery that the economic geologists were recruited to participate in this activity, mainly because we had a sense of the geological record of the process that, that the biologists and the, and the volcanologists were, were looking at. Of course, the, the, the major discovery at the time was not so much the mineralizing events, but the life at the vents. This basically shook the foundation of biology because of the existence of, of life in the absence of, of photosynthesis. And that just that changed everything. It didn't change the science so much for us as economic geologists, because we already knew a lot about massive sulfide deposits. We already knew a lot about black smoke, or we, we thought we did. And so our participation was more of a, a recruitment exercise by the biologists and the, and the volcanologists to bring along some people who could tell them what, what they were looking at in terms of, of mineralizing processes. And so we, we became involved as hitchhikers, but soon developed a reputation for being able to function on the seafloor in ways that many biologists and volcanologists or biologists certainly and volcanologists couldn't, it seemed. They loved to dive with us because we could navigate. You knew where you were going. Yeah, how we knew to find where, where you were going. You can only, you can only right. see it 10 feet in front of you. So it's a bit like walking around in the bush with a flashlight. And if you're constantly driving in circles to perform different experiments and collect different samples for different reasons for different people. It is a tendency to get lost, but geologists are constantly making maps in their head. And uh, so after a while, they really like to dive with us because we get back to where, where they started half, most of the time. And so right. it became a fixture in the whole community of, of, of marine research. And of course, we were secretly learning an, an enormous amount about the mineralizing process and about volcanogenic massive sulfides at the time. And so that synergy with the volcanology community and the, and the biology community has, has been very powerful for us. That's amazing, really, to think about, because we don't have that opportunity on land very often to bring all these different disciplines together. Yeah, the very worst cruises are those where you only have uh, a ship full of scientists with one goal in mind and one, one discipline. And the, the best research expeditions are, of course, the, the truly multidisciplinary ones where everybody's learning from everyone. Right, right. So what did you learn about these vents and the fluids that make them? I mean, we must have learned something that, that applies to our deposits on land as well in terms of the mineralizing process through these vent systems. I think what we learned was um, we thought we knew a lot about hydrothermal fluids in VMS systems from uh, mineral equilibria, from fluid inclusion studies, from alteration systems. We thought we knew quite a bit, and we did. And now with the, you know, the thousands of samples that have been collected in, in very different volcanic and tectonic settings, the, the diversity of those hydrothermal fluids is now really helping to define new models for VMS systems that we never really would have, have thought of. I think uh, just by working on land. Yeah, we tend to think of one fluid and don't think of an evolving fluid or different types of fluids in different parts of the system. So that must yeah. be pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, when the first uh, when the first fluids were sampled in the 1980s, of course uh, there were certain 
aspects of them that became well well understood. For example, the loss of magnesium during hydrothermal circulation from seawater, the loss of sulfate. Those processes became fairly well understood very quickly by uh, the work of a number of people like uh, John Edmund and, and Karen Von Dam. And we sort of understood that from the ancient geological record as well, because we knew that seawater reacting with basalt would precipitate chloride and the chloride would uh, take up most of the magnesium and the hydrothermal fluids, the so-called end-member hydrothermal fluids, would arrive at the seafloor with no magnesium in them. And uh, that was exactly what was observed. Same with sulfate. We knew from the geological record that uh, sulfate from seawater was being either reduced or precipitated as in hydrate on the, on the downwelling limbs of the hydrothermal cells. And uh, the hydrothermal fluid would come out at 350 degrees and there'd be no sulfate. And so that was consistent with our, with our models as well. And those defined what we've referred to at the time as the zero magnesium and the zero sulfate and member fluids. In fact, it was the first 10 years, it, it got to be a little boring because the hydrothermal fluids were the same everywhere. Black smoke, you know, you've seen one black smoker, you've seen them yes. all. And right. the fluids really had very little uh, variability with the exception of mixing with, with background seawater. And so a lot of people kind of lost interest until a couple of fluids started showing up that had that didn't have zero magnesium. They had they had more magnesium in them than they should have, more mag magnesium than seawater, or more sulfate than seawater. And this suddenly opened the eyes of a lot of people and said, okay, wait a minute, the zero magnesium and the zero sulfate model is not the whole story. The only way to get enrichments in things like magnesium in hydrothermal fluids was, of course, to leach magnesium out of the rock under very low pH conditions. The best way to get more sulfate in the fluids or more sulfur in the fluids than you would have expected is by adding a magmatic uh, sulfur dioxide on it. So suddenly, uh, this kind of quiet period after the early 1980s when everything looked the same. And then suddenly everything started looking different everywhere. And every time somebody went and sampled a fluid somewhere else, especially in the subduction zones in the Western Pacific, it became obvious that the fluids were quite, di quite diverse. And if you go back and look at ancient VMS deposits, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised because if you look at all the fluid inclusion work that's ever been done, on VMS deposits, the salinities range from, you know, one to 25 weight percent equivalent to UCL. That should have been telling us that something unusual is going on. It's not just seawater. And sure enough, eventually hydrothermal fluids were found that on the seafloor that were clearly affected by phase separation and that, and that vapor-rich fluids were being vented in some locations and, and brines were being vented in, in other locations. And so that diversity, I mean, that really, I think, is what is what advanced our understanding of VMS systems. We had the framework. We just didn't have all the details. Right. All that nuance. Yeah. So most recently, you've come back to us in economic geology, but you were you were off in Germany for a few years setting up a major ocean research group. What else is out there? And what's the, the big picture in terms of looking for resources in the ocean? Well, that's that's it. Exactly. It's a big picture. And one of the reasons that I took a leave of absence to go and, and, and work in Germany was to gain access uh, to and to assist in large-scale exploration programs. Because up until uh, a decade or so ago, the, the areas that were being explored were rather narrow. I mean, let's face it, only 5% of the global ocean has really been explored at the, at the seafloor. And that left a lot of, of territory that hadn't been looked at, including some very diverse in very interesting geological environments like the subduction zones, like the ultra-slow spreading ridges in the high Arctic, like the sediment continental margins where hydrothermal activity also occurs. And so I argued with my German colleagues that we needed to implement a, a, as broad an exploration program as possible to capture all the other end members and not only to explore different areas, but also to employ different techniques. One of the things I spent a lot of time doing is partnering with the geophysics community because it's clear that in order to advance the marine research and marine mineral deposits research, we need to implement the same kind of diverse technology that we implement in exploration on land. Uh, and the very diverse multi-parameter geophysical surveys are, are the way to go. 
But for sure, the expansion of the exploration beyond the standard backyard basin or mid-ocean ridge environment has really opened our eyes. Yeah. And so yeah. that's that's where the, the future lies, I think, I think, in terms of the economic geology community benefiting from expanded research on the ocean floor. Now, I have to say that the interests of, of countries like Germany is is a little bit different. They're actually interested in, in the resource potential of the discoveries that are made. And and that's of course driving a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the research, you know, the search for high technology metals and, and so forth. But of course, we always like to think that we're doing it just for science, right? <laughs> well, if we have the good science first, then hopefully we can do a better job if and when we do start to to access these resources. So you didn't mention nodules in any of that. Do you view nodules as a resource for the future or as a sort of distraction from things that might be easier to process and more valuable? Well, I do have a viewpoint with regards to to nodules and and it relates to the history of their exploration and, and discovery. Of course, they were discovered in the 1870s, so they, we've known about them for a very long time. What we didn't know was how, how many and and where. And that's been, of course, the focus of everyone's work in, in the last couple of decades. But there's an interesting outcome from the lack of exploration of the oceans, and that is that we don't really know that the particular location where people are exploring for and, and ultimately developing nodule resources, we're not sure that's actually the best place to be. And it's our understanding from the geological processes that, that form nodules that there are many other places in the oceans where manganese nodules may, may have formed. And there is certainly some evidence already that there are other locations where the abundance of manganese nodules is even more rich than in the Clarion Clipperton zone where everyone is working right now. That we're in the Clarion Clipperton zone because that was the first place people went. Right. And so I think, again, we're, we're at the cusp of ignorance when it comes to knowing, you know, what the global distribution of manganese nodules might be. What's currently being developed is, is or at least explored for the potential development, is a tip of the iceberg in terms of the global abundance of, of that resource, if you want to call it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I never thought about it. I mean, it's similar to on land. You, you want to develop the best resource you can find. And the highest quality or the highest grade, it could be much more yeah. efficient and cause less damage if you can do it in a smaller area because there's more resource. Yeah. yeah. Have a look at the claim map of the Clarion Clipperton zone. The, the claims are all right up against each other. So that's what you do. You say claim next to the next guy's claim, right? Instead of going off on the other side of the Pacific Ocean to look for pristine or green field, so-called greenfields resource. We need some prospectors out there, Mark. Yeah, well, it's not cheap, and you got to have it. Uh, so that's part of the that's part of the problem. Yeah. I think the same, you know, as terms of future resources. I think the same can be said for continental margins. They are intensely explored for hydrocarbon resources, of course, and the petroleum industry has a very good handle on the geology of, of all of the continental margins. But I'm pretty sure that the metallic mineral resources of the kind that we're familiar with are present there as well, and not at the seafloor, of course, but below the seafloor. And that I think there will be a new wave of exploration probably in, within a decade of looking for offshore buried resources, drifted continental margins in particular. Right. Yeah. And, and a new challenge for us in terms of technology and development and how do you do that right? I think that's that obviously will be a big part of that whole picture. So what's the final word then? It's a big open frontier. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a well-worn phrase that, that we have better geological maps of, of the moon and Mars and Venus and just about every other planet now than we have of our own ocean. And it it's really astounding when you think about the the areas of the ocean floor that have almost no data. And there are huge areas where we have very simplistic ideas of bathymetry, topography, for example. But that's it. There are no geological maps of the ocean floor. And I think we're going to have to map the ocean floor if we want to understand whether it, it can be a resource for the future or or how it should be protected and, and how it should be managed. But it's impossible now because we, we simply don't have 
you know, this basic tool of resource assessment and resource management, which is a geological map. So who would manage that? Who would, I mean, obviously one one of the reasons it it must not have happened is that that requires a real either collaboration across many countries or UN or who leads that effort to map something that is essentially a resource for global society. At the moment, in areas beyond uh, national jurisdictions and exclusive economic zones, which are, of course, the domain of individual countries, beyond, it's the scientific community. There is no intergovernmental or international agency whose responsibility it is to understand and map and provide the geoscience information for the international uh, seabed. And we've often talked about the fact that the one thing that the world lacks is a geological survey of the oceans as a, not a not as a thing, but as an, an agency. Yeah. We have a geological yeah. survey of every country in the, in the world, pretty much, but we don't have a geological survey of the oceans. And, and maybe that's something that we can we can look forward to as more and more interest in the resources of the DHC comes about. Mapping the seafloor is vital to our continued exploration and understanding of seabed resources. Our next guest is Meg Stewart, an assistant professor at Mount Royal in Calgary. She took her land-based geological mapping skills and applied them to the Lao Basin to create a one-to-one million scale geological map of the seafloor, revealing a wealth of information and insights. So yeah, how did you get to be connected to the seafloor? Because it is, it's full of imagination and excitement, but it's not an easy place to work. No, definitely not. So when I was in my undergraduate degree, Kind of what even attracted me to geology was the seafloor and the processes that we've seen, subduction, spreading, all those large-scale features. And then in my honors thesis, I had the opportunity to work on samples from the Juan de Fuca plate off the west coast of, of British Columbia. And so that really piqued my interest in, in seafloor research, and it was really exciting But when I finished, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. And I knew that in order to be a well-rounded geologist, I needed to learn how to produce geological maps. So that led me up to Laurentian University, where I spent the next several years completing my PhD in essentially geological mapping. So looking at volcanogenic massive sulfide or VMS systems in the ancient rock records. And so I was dealing with almost 2 billion year old rocks there, but still looking at similar processes. So looking at the tectonic environment, how these discrete terrains and rock types came together, or how that influenced massive sulfide mineralization. So it was really an economic focused project that integrated volcanology, structural geology, and metallogeny. So it was kind of all my favorite things things in one. And then when I was wrapping that up, I was talking to Mark about where I wanted to go. And and he had this project in the Lao Basin that seemed really interesting. And of course, Mark is also just amazing at, at describing any sort of project that he's working on. And so I went back down to Ottawa to start working on the Lao Basin. And the piece that that really drew me to the Lao Basin was the opportunity to make the comparisons between the ancient and modern. Yeah, excellent. So tell us about the Lao Basin. And, you know, our our listeners are all over the world. So first, you got to locate us in the world. And why that particular piece of seafloor? What's so intriguing about it? Absolutely. It's the area in the Southwest Pacific, kind of between Fiji on the west and then Samoa in the northeast and then Tonga along the eastern margin. So there's this really, really large tectonic plate boundary that kind of bounds this whole system. And it's been really interesting to us for years. Some of the earliest studies in this area took place in the 1970s, and we've just kept going back since then because it is this this region with really interesting plate tectonic processes there's really rapid subduction along that major plate boundary there's extension in the back arc and because of all that and all the crustal growth that's associated with that there's a lot of hydrothermal activity so lots of black smoker vents a lot of the sort of type examples for this hydrothermal activity were documented in the Lao basin we've just kept going back because there's always new things to to find there 
How do you even go about creating a map on the seafloor? How we create a map was kind of the big question we grappled with for a while. We went into this project because we know a lot about the Lao Basin at a more detailed level, but we hadn't yet put together everything that we've come to understand over the past 40, 50 years into one big picture for the Lao Basin. So we understand where specific deposits are, where event sites are, but that intermediate piece that we really need to make those comparisons was missing. That was the rationale for going in and producing these maps at one to one million scale was to to pull everything together from a modern seafloor point of view, so to better understand the overall environment, and then to also actually have a foundation with which to compare the modern and ancient environments. It was kind of nice in a way because we were starting with a clean slate. There had been a lot of work done in the area that we had to integrate, but we could kind of develop our own workflows and our own approach in that way. And the most detailed maps that we had are maps that we refer to as bathmetric maps. So this is really similar to a digital elevation model that we produce on land. But the big difference is with bathymetry because we're dealing with kilometers of seawater and so light can't propagate. Um, We have to deal with acoustic methods. We send out a ping, so we send out a sound, and we measure the time it takes for that sound to hit the seafloor and come back up again. And that gives us the equivalent of a digital elevation model. So that's one of your data sources is obviously the bathymetry. <laughs> what what else did you have to work with in terms of assembling your picture? There's some amazing work going on right now to try to image the entire globe from sort of a digital elevation point of view. Researchers working on how to integrate data from satellites in order to produce these global elevation maps of our Earth. So how to see through the water column, how to produce these sort of large-scale integrated maps. And so the, the data sets that are produced using this approach and this technology are referred to as satellite altimetry. This data set uses kind of irregularities in the surface of the of the sea level, I guess. And they correct for tides, they correct for waves. And then these very, very small irregularities they use to then reflect the topography of the seafloor below. So it's very coarse in terms of comparing it to what we can get from a ship through a bathmetric survey, but it fills in a lot of those gaps. Right. Presumably with that, you can see like a mount or a, a volcano or something like that coming up from the seafloor would be detectable. Exactly. And plate boundaries, any kind of large scale features we can see. Okay. And then you had more than two, I know. Yeah, <laughs> so we there's did. Physics involved for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the derivative data sets from satellite altimetry is called the vertical gravity gradient. And it's essentially a large scale gravity map of the seafloor. This one's really helpful for seeing through sediment, for finding really large scale structures. We also looked at the magnetic picture. So we looked at both ship-based magnetics as well as global magnetics to try to, to figure out relative ages of crust and how the whole area was opening up. We also had what's called the CMT or Centroid Moment Tensor Database. And it compiles all earthquake activity greater than a five magnitude. So this was really, really helpful for us to understand where there was a lot of plate motions. So we know that there's going to be motion at the major plate boundaries, but in terms of looking internal to those large plates, looking at microplates, that was really helpful. I missed one data set, which was side scan sonar, which actually involves an instrument being put in the water and sent out to image the seafloor. It's really commonly used because you get this really nice image of detailed scale features of the seafloor. And then the sort of sister data set would be acoustic backscatter. And what they're imaging is the intensity of that signal. And so what that gives us is 
areas that are sedimented that's have really absorbed that acoustic signal versus areas that are fresh more fresh so rocks that have recently formed they're not heavily sedimented and that signal is going to come back a lot stronger and then we also had like i said all the work that had been done before so all of the samples all of the detailed mapping that had been done before any core so there was some ocean drilling um, results sediment cores we had all that data as well we had some rocks that'll make people feel better we had some rocks yeah we definitely had some rocks yeah and and compiling that data was a huge undertaking we had thousands of samples that we were dealing with so we have all of that now compiled what a resource that is for whatever questions people come up with which they will to go back and query yeah. that database. So, but were you actually trying to integrate all these different data sets? Yeah. So a lot of this with the first mapping effort was kind of trial and error to see what, what would work, what would produce the most accurate map. In the end, we do integrate them. So right now we do this manually. We have them as layers in GIS software and we go back and forth between them. Doing this more from kind of a machine learning AI approach is something we're trying to work towards because right now it's a lot of people power. It requires a lot of people working in these areas and a lot of time. Right. So out of all that, you create this map and I have had a look at it and it, it's beautiful, actually. It's really, it's really gorgeous. And it shows all these different domains. So tell me about what, what you did. Again, a lot of the the kind of goals driving this work was the ability to take these seafloor maps and actually integrate them with land-based geology. So to eventually many years down the line, have one complete map for the earth that doesn't just end where we go from subaerial to submarine settings. Because right now, basically, we have one map for continents and we have a whole other map for the seafloor. So we wanted to to integrate those. I like that vision. That's just (laughs) so cool. I mean... And we don't even think about that. And so when we were kind of structuring the map, again, it was nice to have all the freedom, but it was almost too much freedom because we were starting with with nothing. So we had to not only go in and map, but we had to create the hierarchy and the structure and the legend that we would go in and map with. Because we had the luxury of, of being the first to do this, we decided to structure it Um, based on the stratigraphic hierarchy that we use on land. There's obviously limitations because we can't go down and walk on the seafloor and and correlate formations, Um, but we tried to keep it organized in a way that would be more or less representative of comparable scales of features we would see on land. So assemblages, I think, are probably the most robust in terms of the direct land seafloor comparisons. So that's the sort of larger scale, all rocks that have formed in a similar tectonic volcanic environment. And and so we have really well-defined assemblages for the Lao Basin. The formations were more challenging because we know on land quite often formations are defined with that third dimension. So we have the rock types, we have their um, spatial distribution, but we also have time. So we can see through the different layers that have developed and we block them off as different specific periods of volcanism and periods of time. Whereas on the seafloor, we don't have that third dimension as much. And so what we tried to do there was group rocks that are forming over shorter time intervals, but that we felt if we were going out and we were mapping this on land, we'd probably group all of these rocks together as being their own entity in their own domain. So this would be like various spreading centers, ridges versus the intervening crust, different volcanic centers and the volcanic field that surrounds them. That's the piece that was the most challenging and I think still we probably want to work on a little bit is making those connections between the seafloor formations as we map them and the land-based formations. So tell me a little bit about the tectonics itself, because it's really super complicated. And, you know, that shows up in your map. 
What did you learn? What's the key like, takeaway? Are microplates the answer to everything? <laughs> that's that's the million dollar question. I think if you ask Mark, he would give you a resounding yes. But microplates are are definitely very important. When we went in, we knew where most of the spreading centers were. We had a look at the different rock types and and what sort of defined a spreading regime. But what what really changed in terms of our understanding the more that we mapped this was, as you said, it's a lot more complex than we understood. And so what emerged from this mapping was this picture of pretty stable, relatively simple spreading going on in the southern part of the basin. And then this very complex, piecemeal, overprinting sort of relationships in the northern part of the basin. And that's the part of the basin that's dominated by those microplate tectonics. So we knew that there were probably a few microplates in there, but a lot of this mapping led to our understanding that there are definitely more microplates than we thought, and that a lot of different major crustal scale structures have been formed, abandoned, used, reactivated. And so it was very, very complex in that northern part of the basin. So is that where the hydrothermal activity is? Yeah. So that's a really good question. We are constrained to the data that's collected on the various cruises. So all that to say, our understanding of the distribution of hydrothermal deposits is controlled by the areas that we've actually been to on ships rather than a complete understanding. So what that looks like when you look at a map and a distribution map of the vent sites is a whole lot of vents along spreading centers and then not much data away from spreading centers. So because there are more spreading centers in the north, there are more more hydrothermal vent sites up there. I shouldn't call them deposits yet. But what was really interesting is there had been a little bit of work done, what we call off axis, so away from the spreading centers. And there have been some vent sites identified in those off-axis environments. And generally where those, those sites occur, we can explain their position with microplate tectonics. So they seem to occur where they are off-axis, they are still occurring along plate boundaries and along major crustal scale structures. That's really interesting. Okay. So here's the, the last question, I think. You're, you've obviously been trying to compare the active seafloor to what might have happened maybe in the Archean. Is that going to work? Are you, are you optimistic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a great question. It's the elephant in the room. I am optimistic. Absolutely. Especially at the assemblage level already, what we're learning by studying the Lao Basin in this level of detail and developing this map has informed a lot of kind of the gaps in our understanding at, at the assemblage level, definitely in ancient terrain. So right now, because this, this work is part of a larger project, we actually have ongoing work that's specifically trying to compile a data set for the Abitibi that will be at an appropriate scale to make direct quantitative comparisons. Right now, I think the models that we have to explain, for example, VMS formation in ancient terrains, they're excellent. They've you know led a lot of discovery over the past decades. But there's still a level of simplicity there that we know is not fully representative of what we see in modern environments. I am definitely optimistic that by studying these environments in the Lao Basin and by producing these geological maps, we'll be able to much better understand some of these sort of questions and mysteries that we have when we're studying the land-based geology. Our last guest is Samantha Smith, who is dedicated to understanding the impacts of seafloor mining and helping to guide the science needed to advance our understanding of how to responsibly mine seabed resources. We spoke recently to talk about polymetallic nodules in particular. Are they a realistic resource? I'm very glad to have you and have heard about you for years, Ashley, literally for years. So to finally connect is tremendous. Maybe you could tell me in your words who you are, what you do, and, and what your current role is, and, and a little bit about what Blue Globe Solutions is. Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, Anne. 
I'm a marine ecologist by training. I have a Bachelor of Science from McMaster University here in Canada and a PhD from the University of Bristol in the UK. And my studies and work have focused on aquatic ecology, environmental biology, and environmental management. And in 2005, I was asked to get involved with an environmental study for a seafloor massive sulfide project called Solora One, located in the territorial waters of Papua New Guinea. At the time, I was a postdoc and lecturing at the University of Toronto, teaching courses about climate change, among other things. And my gut reaction, in all honesty, was one of uncertainty. I wasn't sure going to the seafloor for metals was such a good idea. But I made a decision at the time to be a scientist who kept an open mind. And I wanted to help make sure uh, the science was done right for the environmental assessments to allow informed decision making. And while working on that project, my eyes were opened as to the realities facing us with respect to mineral supply and demand um, and some challenges that we, that we face. And one statistic that struck me at that time was that it was anticipated that in the next 15 years, the world would need more copper than had ever been previously mined. And the other stat that struck me was that even if we could recycle every bit of metal ever mined to date, there still would not be enough to meet the demands of a growing population, increased urbanization, and a transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to one that runs on clean energy, which is in turn run on minerals. And another realization that came was, you know, these minerals need to come from somewhere and from a bird's eye view, perhaps looking to the seafloor makes some sense. You know, no forests or mountains need to be removed to get to the ore body no people need to be displaced. And because the minerals sit above the seafloor, things like explosives aren't needed to extract them. And given large amounts of earth don't need to be removed to get to them, there's a huge potential to obtain metal with less waste and a smaller carbon footprint. So it was those are sort of the reasons that got me, I guess, involved in, in this space. And in 2006, I was asked to lead the environmental program for the Sawar One project. And I said yes to help ensure that environment got a say at the dawn of a new industry. And my big aim was to make sure the scientific community was involved with the studies and impact assessments that needed to be completed. Um, and my view was at the time and still is, if this industry is going to happen, let's make sure we get it right or as right as humanly possible right from the very start. That's a big ambition. Yeah. And I just realized that's a long answer and I didn't even get to Blue Globe. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about Blue Globe. Okay. So Blue Globe Solutions is an environmental consultancy of which I'm a director. Most of my time is spent working with Global Sea Mineral Resources, an ISA exploration contractor sponsored by Belgium. And GSR is exploring for seafloor polymetallic nodules in the clarion Clipperton zone in the contract areas at about 4,500 meters water depth in the Pacific Ocean. Polymetallic nodules are rich in metals such as nickel, uh, cobalt, copper, and manganese. And at GSR, among other things, I'm helping to design the environmental program, including environmental management practices alongside the scientific community, making sure that we're setting the environmental bar high as the industry supporting this potential new source of minerals evolves. Cool. That's very interesting, actually. How many companies are out there looking at nodules right now? Um, Well, companies and contractors are two different Answer. Ah. So some contractors, yeah, are private companies. And I think off top, the number that jumped into my head was, was five. Or there's countries that uh, are interested because they don't have a mineral resource within, within right. their, their own country. Right. So this provides them with security of supply, I guess, is, is one of the big, the big reasons that some countries are looking. Right. Yeah. Space. So it's two things. It's either you don't want to access what you do have, or you may actually, in many places, may not actually have it, those commodities available in terms of supply. Yeah. So I first heard about nodules in like 1977, I think. And then wow. I think I was just horrified that we would go out and, and do something in the ocean, which was very precious to me since I grew up in Florida and was an ocean person. I figured we should figure out the on land bit before we went just randomly dredging. And of course, dredging makes a mess. When you use that word, I think it really evoked a lot of fear and trepidation amongst, amongst some of us, for sure. But 
then it all went quiet. And as you said, the rebirth in the early 2000s was a whole new phase of, of this kind of exploration. And certainly our tools for understanding the seafloor and for mapping the seafloor and maybe having a better idea of what we're doing have advanced dramatically since the late 70s. I mean, I don't think we had a clue back then. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, one of the sectors that has also evolved a lot in that time is the marine scientific research sector, if that, if that counts as a sector. And then a lot of the tools that are used for science are also used for exploration purposes. So tools like remotely operated vehicles or autonomous underwater vehicles, different sampling devices, yeah. tools that can map map the seafloor so you get good visuals of of what's down there. And I think we've also come a long way in terms of realizing that we have to care for our planet. We need to look after it. We need to be, you know, thoughtful as we proceed. I think there's a, there has been a shift. I believe anyway, there has been a shift in mindset. And I think, you know, when, when things got started again, back in 2006, the idea really was that this was truly an opportunity for the mining industry or the metals industry, however you want to word it, to start with a clean sheet that things could be done better. We could do things like incorporate renewable energy from the get-go as far as possible. So I think, and as you say, there have been a lot of technology advances. And when the industry didn't go ahead back in 70s and 80s, a big reason for that was that there just wasn't a legal regime in place to to get tenure in in ground or at the seafloor that was beyond national jurisdiction. And since that time, of course, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea has has been developed. And through that, uh, the International Seabed Authority has been established as well, which is the the body that uh, governs seabed minerals in the area beyond national jurisdiction. Right. And are you comfortable with how that works? Do you think it's a robust and framework that it's it's going to allow certainty going forward? It's a, it's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I almost want to go off the record. Yeah. It's a tough one to, to answer because it's not, it's something that's not been done before. You know, what, what UNCLOS was developed for and what the ISA is mandated to carry out is, is ensuring that there are benefits that are widely distributed from obtaining these minerals from the area beyond national jurisdiction. And there's a lot of good, I think, uh, about it in terms of having, you know, a UN body make timely decisions. That's still a bit on the on the tricky side, I would say. So, so nodules. Let, let's talk about nodules. Sure. So the the nodules are found on the abyssal plains of the world's oceans. And probably the most recognized area is, is a place called the Clarion Clipperton zone, which exists in 4,000 to 6,000 meters water depth below the Pacific Ocean. If you were to look at a photo of a seafloor area covered by nodules, it honestly doesn't look like much. You could imagine a seemingly endless sandy floor covered with these blackish brown golf ball to potato sized rocks, even though they're not officially rocks, they're accretions, but that's what it looks like. And life doesn't always appear visible in the photos or videos we take. And that's because most of the life that is there exists in the sediments and is extremely small. But, you know, these nodules have formed over millions of years and they might not look like much, but they contain some of the very metals we need. Metals such as nickel, cobalt, manganese and copper. Right. So I'm, I'm used to, because I'm old school, of calling them manganese nodules because that's mm. the, the dominant metal. And, and I know you refer to them as polymetallic. Yeah. <laughs> Is that just to emphasize the fact that there's more than manganese in them? For sure. And I think the the main metal of interest or the main metals of interest are nickel and cobalt, but also copper and, and manganese are important too for the infrastructure and clean energy needs. And it is, I think the word polymetallic, yes, it's to it's to highlight that they're multi-metal. And I think it also sort of helps explain, you know, that these that the the multi-metal nature of these deposits is one of the things that makes them quite special. As far as I know, all four metals aren't found together on land. And so if you need all four, then, you know, it might be better to have one spot on the planet where we retrieve metals from as opposed to two or three. Yeah. Having all four together must also present a processing challenge. So the processing side is that's parts beyond my area of expertise. Yes. But there are metal, <laughs> there are metallurgists working on this who say it is possible, and I think there's there's a few different pathways 
that you can take to get the metals out. But it looks like, I mean, again, as far as I know, the companies working on this are looking at trying to get something out of every single constituent that's in a nodule to try to get a saleable or usable product. Right. Right. Yeah. There's all sorts of downstream issues because of the amount of manganese we already have and is produced and the economics that drive that all that part of the market. But we won't worry about that right now. I think we should just put that aside okay. and, and talk about what's actually there on the seafloor. And, yeah. and it is a resource, regardless of whether it's it's mined in the next year or, or 10, 20, 30 years from now. So, so you're involved with a group who's out there actually trying to think about mining the nodules. How is that going to work? What, what does the technology look like now for actually getting these things off the seafloor? Okay, well, there are three main components to a deep seabed nodule collection operation. And first of all, starting on the seafloor, there'll be a seafloor nodule collector that is basically like a big vacuum cleaner on caterpillar tracks. And similar vehicles do already exist to do things like lay pipelines and cables beneath the seafloor. The front of this vacuum cleaner has these nodule collectors and, and these themselves don't actually touch the seafloor. They, they suck up the, the nodules from just above, above the seafloor with the aim being to minimize sediment disturbance. Right. Um, that nodule collector, so the second part of it is, is the nodule collector is attached to a long pipe called a riser. And this is what brings the nodules from the seafloor nodule collector up to a surface vessel. This part of the system is based on technology from the offshore oil and gas industry. And it was deliberately chosen. Well, there's a few reasons, but one and one of the reasons I like is that it's fully enclosed. So this, again, minimizes interaction of the, of the minerals with the water column. The third main component is the surface vessel, which is where the crew lives and where the nodules are stored before they're transported onto cargo vessels, which will take the nodules to a land-based processing plant. Yeah. And it's it's not sort of a robotic vacuum going around the seafloor by itself, kind of randomly scooping things up. Yeah, it's still controlled by the ship uh, yeah. from the ship. And it does go in a predetermined pattern. And then the other thing that GSR has been working on is their program is called Compass. And uh, it is a way of basically telling the vehicle where to go, but for the vehicle to be able to receive feedback from the environment, such as direction of ocean currents, or if if the sediment plume that's being created is, is going in a different direction than predicted, then the vehicle can be directed to to change course, which I think is pretty neat, right? It's it's gonna yeah. have it's gonna have all these sensors that the are real time and yeah real time real time yeah. reaction to what what's yeah. happening. I've tried to explain that very simply, but when I first saw it, it blew my mind. I just, I think it's incredible what the stuff that's being thought about and, and it's pre-thought, right? I mean, this is all before an industry actually exists because yeah, there really is a, a big effort to make sure that we're caring for the oceans as we proceed. That is the philosophical part of it. What you put out there is to be thinking about it in advance. You're absolutely right. On land, we never had that opportunity. We did it and now we're constantly back re-engineering or you know, our processes are are so fixed. And so we're constantly trying to readjust things and and we rarely have that opportunity to go in with a whole new process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. And of course, and of course we can learn from other industries that have gone before, like, you know, like land-based mining, like offshore oil and gas, like offshore dredging. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, there's, it's not starting from scratch for sure, yeah. but also there's an aim to improve upon what's been, what's been done before. Yeah. So you talked about the sediment, sediments disturbed a bit, even with the vacuum system, and there might be some sediment going up the riser. What's the characteristic of it? Does it, does it float for a long time? Is it very fine or clay rich or what's it made of? There is a fine I mean, <laughs> hardly scientific term, but fluffy layer. <laughs> okay. And that's what I wonder because the SMC floor is like that. It's not consolidated. And then, and then clay underneath. Like it looks, I mean, it looks consolidated. I mean, one thing I have to say that's always, and I might be risking sounding dumb here, but one thing that's always amazed me is that if it is so fine, how do the nodules sit on top of right. it? Right. Yeah. But what we saw with the recent trials. So earlier this year, GSR went out with a pre-prototype seafloor nodule collector called Batania 2. 
And the aim of the trial was to test the vehicle's traffic ability, maneuverability, ability to pick up nodules. And combined with that, another big part of the mission was to do environmental monitoring, in part to test our own environmental monitoring strategies, see what worked, what didn't work, what could be improved, but also to validate the sediment plume models that had been created prior prior to the trial. The GSR vessel was also accompanied by uh, another vessel that contained independent scientists from the EU uh, scientific consortium called JPI Oceans, and it was their Mining Impact 2 project. And they also independently monitored the the trial, including learning more about the sediment plumes. And a lot of those results are still ongoing, but what but initial findings are are actually better than what we thought. So the sediment seems to stick pretty close to the seafloor. Most of it stayed three meters and below. And what we saw by using an autonomous underwater vehicle, which had uh, cameras on it, we followed the plume and we're able to see that within one and a half to two kilometers, you couldn't see any evidence of of nodules being covered up by the sediment. So it seems that yes, it extends beyond the directly mined area, but you know, now we think, okay, those learnings can be incorporated into mine planning in an effort to keep the, the plume within the directly mined areas as much as possible. Interesting. So was that the expedition that had Greenpeace following it as well? Yes. So there were three. Oh, yeah. 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 It's all interesting. I, I, I have to say, I still, I still worry, but there's a lot in what you just said that that's reassuring. We don't, what we don't want is another, you know, as you said about the land base, I mean, a lot of that is the colonial model of resource extraction and mining. So, uh, yeah. And that, that history is actually part of what makes trying to do something differently so hard because people think of that history in the back of their minds. Oh yeah. But you know, it is time to do things differently and to think about our planet differently and interact with it differently. The harmful impacts of land-based mining is well known and we need to talk about it a lot more. But there also is tremendous opportunity to benefit communities and to to provide situations where they own the mines and where the resources and and what's happening has long-term sustainable benefit, to my mind anyway, this is just simplistic me, extract it from the ocean. So a country benefits or society benefits, but where's the community? Is that a good thing? So in the area beyond national jurisdiction, I mean, your nearest coastal community is is pretty far away, right? At least a thousand kilometers, probably 1600 kilometers. And I think, you know, the arguments that the industry will make are things like, unlike on land, people don't need to be relocated. You don't need the infrastructure required for terrestrial mines. You're not clearing forests. You don't need to build power stations on land. You don't need road and railway networks. So one way to look at it is that the impact on human society could be greatly reduced. I mean, one of the reasons UNCLOS was set up as well was to make sure that there was an equal distribution of benefits from minerals obtained from the area beyond national jurisdiction. And that's actually the main piece of the the regulations that haven't yet been finalized is about that royalty payments, et cetera, and the distribution of them. But thinking about it, it's working in a space where no one is a community member and yet everybody is a community member, right? Like it's working with the common heritage of mankind. And more broadly speaking, you know, the industry does need a social license to operate. And many people around the world, you and I included, rightly have a very strong and emotional connection to the sea. And to me, this is a good thing. And it's an important thing because it means that we should be setting high environmental standards from the get-go. I think we all recognize there is absolutely no benefit in harming the oceans. We all recognize they're so important to, to our health, to the health of our planet. And I think that there is a big education piece needed around how we cannot obtain metal from our planet with zero environmental impacts. And there is indeed a sustainability paradox because to feed the green transition most of us say we want and agree we need we need to source metals from somewhere and this means causing some impact to the planet we are trying to protect and so the debate should be i think how do we obtain the metals we need with the least impact to our planet as possible with most societal benefit And, you know, at the end of the day, climate change and population growth are whole world issues and we need whole world solutions. And I would I would love to see more people working together 
to solve it. If the industry is still in the research phase, my vote would be to let the research continue so that we can make informed decisions about where future metal supply should come from. All credible sources tell us we need more metal to meet the demands of a growing population, increased urbanization, um, and the transition to clean energy. And if deep seabed minerals can be developed in such a way that they can be counted among the most responsible sources of metal, doesn't it make sense to keep exploring that option? Many thanks to Mark Hannington, Nick Stewart, and Sam Smith for sharing your thoughts and wisdom in this episode. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you, our awesome listeners, for joining us. I'm Ann Thompson, and I've enjoyed taking this tour of ocean resources and the seafloor with you. Next week, we'll tackle the philosophy of resource estimation with your host, Aisha Ahmed. This is season two of Discovery to Recovery, and all the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts, and most other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Goldspot on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified about new releases. This episode was produced by your host, with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Halle Kibel, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and catch you next time. <laughs>